Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Especially when I'm listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Madonna for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Wicked Good and Rawbone podcast. Ahem. If you would like to join our Facebook group, I am unloading on that thing. I have so many wrestling, good wrestling pictures that I'm sharing. If you want to check it out, have cool conversations, go to Facebook. Search Stick to Wrestling, and I will invite you in as soon as I see it. If you would like to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you would like to donate to our show, I haven't mooched money from you guys in a long time. I accept PayPal at uh, Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. This is a free show with no ads and no paywall, nothing like that. So if you'd like to thank me with even five, ten, twenty, a hundred thousand dollars, that would be awesome. And with that, I want to bring on a guest, a very popular guest on Stick to Wrestling, Thomas Bain. Thomas, first of all, thank you for coming on. And secondly, thank you for pushing the show back an hour. You want me to tell you what happened? Well, I guess you're going to tell us anyway, John. So get I right am going to tell I joined a fantasy football league that had a live draft via Skype. And they're like, okay, 3 o'clock on Sunday the 21st. So I'm like, okay, hey, we'll do Stick to Wrestling at 5.30. I'll probably have time to eat something. This thing was still going on at 6.20. I'm like, God, it was at the very end. I was like, guys, I got to bag out of this. So that's why I was late. It's this time of year. But, Thomas, glad to have you back. Glad to be back. And I'll just say that, John, you got to go to the auction draft. Because once you go auction draft, you'll never go back to standard. Because now... With standard drafts in this in the day of the internet age, my 90-year-old dead grandmother could draft the same team as I could because they just go down the Yahoo list and it's just chalk after chalk after chalk. Yep. Auction draft, you got to pay for what you want, so it's, it's, it's a hodgepodge pile for everything else. I'm looking forward in my Pittsburgh league to see if Najee Harris actually breaks the all-time auction draft record of $75. So it's going to be interesting to see if he can break that threshold this year. I think he, I think he's right on the line this year, I think. So it'll be interesting. Thomas, I did my first auction draft in fantasy baseball the day after the first WrestleMania. So I'm kind of a veteran for that, to that process, but I've never done it with fantasy football. I mean, it's, it's no different than, than baseball, really. I guess what it comes down to is, thankfully, for when Yahoo does it, they've kind of dummy-proofed it to where you can't accidentally spend all $200 and still have four guys left over sort of thing. So there is that positive to that aspect. But really, and again, it goes down, it, it, it dummy proofs it again on the opposite end to where it gives a recommended draft value. It gives the top 10 lists, everything else like that. So it really still is kind of a pain. I mean, I wish there was a way somehow in you know Yahoo or, or even ESPN settings where you could turn, like, hints and stats and all that other junk off, but I don't think you can, so it is what it is. The all-time most paid in my fantasy baseball league to a player was 
Get ready for it. Marty Cordova. This guy just had all kinds of money left over. He said, screw it. Marty Cordova, $72 at the end of the draft. But anyway, I think we better stick to wrestling. Last week, we talked about the top 10 tag teams of 1987, and it was well-received. So we're going to do the top 10 singles wrestlers of 1987, and we're going to kind of combine Wrestling Observer Newsletter and Pro Wrestling Illustrated criteria. I actually have 18 wrestlers listed, but I'm only going to do the top 10. Thomas, who did you have coming in at number 10? Uh, Actually, I made a list of about 22 as well that I pared down to 10. And number 10, I had Dusty Rhodes, actually. 1987 for Dusty Rhodes was really, you know, I know he had time in the WWF and the quote-unquote big time in terms of television. But I feel like 1987 was the final year where Dusty Rhodes had main event relevancy. I had Dusty Rhodes at number nine, and I agree with you. I mean, he he had a big year. Number nine kind of sounds low, but it really isn't. He won the U.S. title. He had a big run with Tully Blanchard at the beginning of the year. I mean, he was still very relevant in the NWA, but you're right. Right around, I'd say like spring 88, it was like, look, it's time for Dusty to move down the card. No questions asked this time. And I think with Dusty, too, when you when you get down to it, he pigeons, he pigeons hold himself in one feud too many. When he brought in the war games and sidetracked with Nikita, with the Road Warriors, everyone else, I know Dusty had to be there because of the Crockett Cup and, you know, the Magnum TA thing and make, turning Nikita babyface and everything else. But at some point in time in 87, he should have taken a step to the side, especially when he won the U.S. title off of Lex Luger there near the end of 87. That just came just almost nauseous because, like, oh, here we go. Here's Dusty again now getting to the top of the card again, booking himself to the top. And really, it was almost a swan song for him in terms of the NWA uh, run that he had. So, because really, as you said, he had the little run with Barry Windham in 88, uh, with the Road Warriors as well, obviously. But they, they seemed to be, you know, down towards the middle of the card. Uh, maybe a headlining a B-show sort of thing if they did that in the NWA. But he was never a threat again to Ric Flair in the world title. Well, <laughs> that was not the plan coming in, and I'm not, I'm not trying to turn this into a crack on Dusty 60-minute uh, show, but D- the, the plan was for Dusty Rhodes as the Midnight Rider to win the NWA championship at the 1988 Great American Bash, and then he was going to have to forfeit the title because, you know, he, as the Midnight Rider, he would have to unmask privately in front of Jim Crockett and, you know, obviously he's suspended, so he would have had to give up the title. Yes, the same thing he did in 1983. So Dusty had big plans for himself in 1988, but, I mean, the Midnight Rider was just an unbelievable flop. And when I say unbelievable, I mean, you would watch, I would watch, I, I, would, I think, six hours of NWA TV per week, and every hour was the Midnight Rider hour. It was God, was it awful. Let me ask you a question about that. Do you think it flopped more? Because I have a theory about that, too. I think you know, part of the reason is just the, just the repetitiveness of Dusty being on TV again and again. But another part is, do you think the fans kind of got tired of seeing Magnum TA? And, and by that, I mean, like, just the depressing aspect of here was this top, you know, main-level guy, and now here he is, you know, hobbled up on a cane on TV, you know, almost, you know, being you know, vulnerable to anybody. 
and then Dusty has saved him time and time again. Do you think fans just kind of said, oh, I don't want to see Magnum in that light anymore? I honestly agree with you. I think people, and that was that was going to be their big angle, like a heel was going to attack Magnum TA, and you're right. I, I It's something I personally did not want to see, but I knew they were going to do it, and when they did it, it was like they just spent their money on nothing. They they spent it on an angle that, you know, just never went anywhere. John, who's your number 10? My number 10 is someone who was the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion for about three months. I had Ron Garvin at number 10. Theoretically, I would like to have put him higher because he won the championship, but they were just nine guys that were better than him. And obviously, we're talking about angles that flopped. Oh, my God, this this flopped and flopped badly. I think the if you were just the most casual fan watching at home, you knew he just won the title so that Ric Flair could regain it at Starcade, and that's exactly what happened. I Going through my list here, and I didn't number these you know, from 11 on down, but I would have probably put Ronnie Garvin somewhere in that 18 range for me. The world title run was a, a complete flop, as you said. And, and the reason he really got to 18 was with the feud uh, with him and his brother with Ric Flair uh, in the summer going into fall. I think did more to get him to that ranking than the NWA title. When you, when you look at the run, what did he have? Did he have any TV matches of the title? I knew he had a match with Tully Blanchard, but I don't think they really counted him as the champion very much, except for no, they- the match against Ric Flair and Starcade. No, they basically uh, put the NWA championship on ice about two months before Starcade came along. And I- I've always said this. It's not that I thought Ronnie Garvin was a terribly poor choice for the championship, although I, I don't think he was the best one. But the worst part about it is they-, they did nothing to build him up. He was just kind of a mid-card guy since around 1984 and bang, three years Later, he wins the championship with no real buildup. And, I mean, the whole thing was a mess. The whole thing was a testament to Dusty has run out of ideas as Booker. Aside from Barry Windham, who else said no to that world title run? I have heard over the years that Barry Windham said no to the championship run. I kind of don't believe it um because barry and flair had been wrestling you know the from the beginning of 87 until around april may so they already had that feud and i had always heard that ron garvin was getting the title as you know partially as a thank you for a great you know three years or whatever it was and because he was supposed to main event starcade against rick flair in 86 but then magnum had his accident and instead, he winds up jobbing to Big Bubba Rogers, and that was kind of a, a thank you to Ronnie Garvin. That, that's what I've always heard. And, and number two, why? Speaking of Big Bubba and a couple of, the, why wouldn't they put Ronnie Garvin over those you know mid card heels in in Crockett? Now I get it that you don't want to bury the young talent for the older guy in Ronnie Garvin, who at that time might have been you know one of the oldest. NWA world champion, certainly probably the oldest NWA first time heavyweight champion. More very likely. But but then the only way you can get any money out of Ron Garvin after that is if he beats all these guys like Big Baba, he beats Manny Fernandez, he beats this guy, he beats that guy. And then once Flair beats him, 
he gets mad because I don't know, Dusty gets a shot or Nikita gets a shot, and then he turns heel. That, that, that's the most logical way to do Ronnie Garver. Other, aside from that, they did the exact opposite. Ronnie doesn't beat anybody on television. Flair beats him at Starcade. Ronnie goes right back down to the middle of the card, and then in the summer of 88, turns heel in a, in a meaningless feud. I'm not saying they could have made a million dollars off of Ronnie Garvin, but they, they pissed a lot of money away at the same time. I agree, and if they knew Ron Garvin was going to be the NWA champion, they should have done something like, just ha- instead of putting the, the TV title on Nikita, put it on Ron Garvin, and like you said, have him defend that title, beat some top guys on TV, and then while he's still TV champion, have him beat Ric Flair. Give the poor guy a chance. Give him some credibility. But instead, I mean, you know, you've seen the match from Chicago with Flair and Garvin. The, you know, the fans were booing Garvin, and the boos are always way worse live than they come across on TV. And I don't even think he has to beat, you know, Tully and Arn and, and Lex Luger. Let him, like I said, let him beat the Barbarian. Let him beat, you know, Eddie Gilbert. Let him just beat some of the, let him beat the UWF guys. Let him beat somebody. Let him get on TV to establish credibility and instead of having Ric Flair beating guys every night on, on 605. And then of course they're going to think Flair's going to win. And they're, they're going to want Flair to win because Flair represents the title and he wrestled every week. Why would you want Ronnie Garvin to win so he can go hibernate for three more months? It it made absolutely no sense, especially like you said. Now, at least Ronnie Garvin, he's a former NWA champion. He did it once. Maybe he could do it again, but he beat Ric Flair. That that proves he can beat anyone on any given night. And no, they just they just forgot about the guy. Yeah, it wasn't even a gradual step down the ladder. It was just a free fall after he he won that match, which kind of leads me to believe. If they knew the booking plans, maybe Barry Windham turned it down. Because at that point in time, if you're going to make this run and you know the limitations of the wrestlers that you have out there, why wouldn't you give Nikita Cole off that three-month run? Why wouldn't you give, hell, Ricky Morton that three-month run, knowing that they're going to win the belt on a hot shot, so to speak. Flair wins it back. And then they go back to in the middle of the card. You're not you're not establishing a new main event guy or even a new mid card guy. You're just establishing a guy. And, and really, winning that title, you know, when you look at Ronnie Garvin's '86 and his first half of '87, winning the world title actually devalued him. It did, no questions. And yeah, I mean, you're you know, like I said, it, it's some people think if you're a good booker, you're going to be a good booker forever, and that just was not the case with Dusty. I think you know, every booker has a shelf life, and Dusty Rhodes was the premium example of that. He was just done by the middle of 1987 and and Jim Crockett should have said look Dusty I'm going to make someone else a booker for a little while we're going to let you recharge your batteries but like that's hard it's hard to go for a wrestler to go from you know the booker to one of the boys and it just didn't work out what can I say yeah all right Uh, moving on to uh, my number nine here and I think the higher we go, the more we're going to be in Zapatico here. But my number nine is Terry Gordy. And uh, 1987, really the, the back half of 86 into 87 for me was the first time looking at his career where Gordy, and really probably the only time in his career actually, where Gordy I felt could have had a possible run 
as an NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I thought if they transitioned him, you know, properly from the UWF to the NWA, it would take a little bit of time, but he could have certainly been a world champion. His run in the UWF was phenomenal. Uh, he really hadn't slowed down due to injuries yet. I mean, the Freebird stuff is better, but you could argue his work as a solo is probably not any better than this time right here. I agree with you. I actually had not I, – I had considered uh, Terry Gordy, but I didn't have him written down, so he's not in my top 18. He could have been. Um, I mean, you're right. He was phenomenal right around the end – no, it was the middle of 84. I saw Terry Gordy uh, against Kerry Von Erich for the World's Heavyweight Champion when Kerry was champ. And I was like, you know what? I could see Ron, uh, Terry Gordy pulling this off someday, especially if he is still one of the Freebirds with Michael Hayes as his manager. And Bill Watts saw what I saw. I mean, Gordy was phenomenal. And really, you can tell sometime around 88, whenever. Because he was in the war games, correct? Yeah, he was in the 89 war games. 89 war games, okay. Um, right around then is when he seemed to really start slowing down. And it was his injuries, I'm sure, combined with extracurricular activities that really kind of hindered him. And, and by 1990, it was clear that that, that that ship had sailed for him. And he was just going to be another you know, tag-along guy with Michael Hayes or, or in Japan or on the Indies. The the air the time for the and, and the, the the sport had evolved too. You had gone from NWA guys like Ric Flair, Ronnie Garvin, things like that, and now you were transitioning to Lex Luger and Sting. And Terry Gordy wasn't going to fit in that world. You know, Terry Gordy. I mean, it, it's a sad story that you know everything that happened to him. I mean, I was around him when he was in Smoky Mountain in ninety four or ninety five, and oh my God, he. I mean, he, he was so mentally damaged. He just, you know, kind of stood there. It was really sad to see. I, I have seen some of the promos from the um, the eight-man eight man cage match between Smoky Mountain and USWA, and it, it just sounds bad. It, it just sounds bad. It looks bad. Like, you, you can almost kind of see, if, you, if you've ever seen the clip, it's on YouTube somewhere, where he gets a little bit of mic time. And Brad Armstrong, out of the corner of his eye, kind of like, because Brad Armstrong's facing the camera in the front, and Terry's on the back left. And when Terry's talking, Brad kind of looks over and looks back kind of like, we're not going to use this, right? <laughs> I had heard a story about all Terry Gordy needed to do was say something like, you know, I'm coming to Knoxville, and I'm going to do this. And it took like 10 takes just to get a sentence out of the poor guy. I mean, he OD'd twice. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, OD'ing once. I don't even want to do that. And he OD'd twice. And it's a shame because he he really had so much potential. But anyway, uh, so who did you – I'm sorry, you had Gordy number nine, right? Yes. Who did you have at number eight, Thomas? At number eight, I had Steve Dr. Death Williams, and pretty much everything I said about Terry Gordy, you can compound with Dr. Death, but Dr. Death had a better run in the UWF, I think, in 87, and he was given a lot more of a clouded push in the NWA when the merger came. So I think just by that, obviously Williams and Gordy have been joined at the hip due to their tag team. I think their their runs and their work in 87 were very similar. And just the nod that Williams had the better push uh, once the merger came is why he's my number eight. 
I like this because our, we're a little bit different. I actually had Williams at number 15. There's an alternative universe where Bill Watts does not sell the UWF and Williams comes in at maybe even number two because Williams was, was about to get the super push when Bill Watts sold uh, the UWF. He was going to become the number one babyface. Uh, Ted DiBiase was about to turn on him. They had already started dropping hints on TV, and that was the thing that was going to push him to the top and theoretically make him the UWF's Hulk Hogan, which I don't think he ever could have become, like, even a little bit. But, I mean, Gordy, not Gordy, Williams is so, so much in the U.S., a bunch of unused potential 89 into the 90s i thought he was the guy that they should have sat down and said look we'll make it lucrative enough for you to not go to japan and be one of our very top heels and we'll get you a manager and the whole nine yards but uh, williams yeah i had him a little bit lower because his push just seemed to go dusty didn't seem anywhere near as enthusiastic uh pushing doc as bill watts did I agree with you there, but again, it, it just perplexes me how Dr. Death got the pinfall win over Barry Windham in Starcade 87, especially when you think that Dusty and was kind of cozy with, with Barry and Blackjack, and Dr. Death got a, you know, it was a fluke win in terms of how it happened, but it was still yet a 1-2-3 win. Yeah, it was supposed to be one of those, oh, Doc, you were supposed to give Barry some time to recover from that accidental low blow, but you didn't, and, and now you're a bad guy for that. It was, it was always a bad idea coming in, but yeah, Williams was absolutely misused by the NWA, you know, not just in 87, but 88, 89 as well. I, I could see when they brought him in in 88 with the Varsity Club, I think it was 88, 89, where they could, you have to use him somewhere to kind of build him credibility because maybe that UWF audience didn't really know Dr. Death as well. So I can kind of justify the varsity club thing, but as long as he kind of climbed out of that as, as the alpha male of that trio, well, trio when you count Steiner and Rotunda, but they never really did. They never really, the, the varsity club one day kind of just, well, they added Dan Spivey after Steiner left too, so I forgot to mention that. It was just a really a miscast place of characters. They had guys that had talent. They all played college sports. Let's, let's lump them all together. It's almost kind of the modern-day lazy booking of the WWE where they just, hey, these guys have this, you know, equal uh, and common bond. Let's, let's have them go that way. But it was, yeah, I, I think they could have done something with the Varsity Club, but it was poorly ran in and of itself. I have been watching... NWA Pro Wrestling, the syndicated show from 1988, coincidentally, right? And I am missing the episode where Steve Williams sends in a promo from Japan announcing that he's now in the varsity club, stripping off his sweatshirt and showing the Oklahoma singlet. And if anyone has this, uh, I looked up for it on YouTube. I couldn't find it. If anyone would like to post that interview to the group, please, to the Facebook group, please do so because it is the most, it is the most incredible interview known to man. And when I say that, I mean incredibly bad. I, I need a transcript of this. It's like Doc was going nowhere and 
It just showed that, you know, yeah, this guy needed a mouthpiece. It was an interesting idea to put him in the varsity club, but then they didn't know what to do with the varsity club. It was it was exasperating. Well, the varsity club was going fine as as the the rough heel tag team. But then what do you do when you bring the skyscrapers in? That totally cuts out the feet of the varsity club. And you've already turned the Road Warriors heel, so now you've got three of those teams. Right. 87 and 88 were downright exasperating (laughs) when we talked about NWA booking. I went for my number eight with Barry Windham for one reason. Work rate counts. It's It's not everything here, but it counts. And Barry had some of the best matches ever against Ric Flair the first half of 1988 and then 86 excuse me in 1987 and then they had no idea what to do with Barry Windham stop and think about that for a minute think about how good Barry Windham was he was good on the stick he had charisma everyone liked him and it's like oh what do we do with Barry now let's create a title to put on him but again the matches with Flair were, were so great I had I had to have Barry at number eight. I pushed work rate more than the PWI version of this top 10. I have Barry Windham as my number four, actually, because I would say he is, in my eyes, at worst, the third best American wrestler in the world at this time. So to say that, and, and the matches he had the fact that he could have been quite easily a long-term NWA champion. If, if Barry Windham won the title in April of 87, it would have been far from anyone's mind for him not to carry the belt into 88. Like he would have been a long-term champion and, and been booked fine. And the NWA would not have missed a beat. Flair chasing him, Arn chasing him, Tully chasing him, Lex chasing him, whoever. And Barry just keeps winning. Barry keeps winning. Of course, in that scenario, Dusty's got to probably, you know, stick his nose in there and make himself a focal point of a tag team match or a war games or a program. And then Barry turns on Dusty and Dusty wins the belt back. But I I digest the fact that Barry Windham, I think, was probably, and you could even make the argument that he might have been the best worker in the world, in, in, in America, at least in 1987. But I will concede the fact that he was in the top three. And based on that, that's why he was my number four for this year. Okay. Wyndham, no lower than three. I'm I'm trying to figure out who the other two are. Flair, obviously. Owen Hart? See, here's why I didn't – Owen Hart's not on my list. No, neither – not mine either. The same reason why a double-A pitcher can't win the Cy Young. (laughs) I agree with you. Um, So the other guy, DiBiase. Randy Savage. Okay, I can see that. Totally see that. Yeah, Randy Savage had a phenomenal 87 that really kind of prompted, and that goes by the charisma, but I could see D.B. Aussie. But the thing about D.B. Aussie, and I'll, I'll get to this momentarily, because D.B. Aussie is, in fact, my number seven, actually. And the reason why he's number seven is he really didn't wrestle in the second half of 1987. The second half of 87 was just pretty much all vignettes. Okay, I... I can see that. Huh, you know what? I had Ted DiBiase as my number six. 
you know, because he, he beginning of the year, he was one of the top guys in UWF and he got the gimmick that Vince McMahon would have given himself. I mean, and it was clearly going to be the top heel in the WWF, but you're right. He really didn't do a lot of wrestling uh, at the be in the middle of 1987. You're right. It was all vignettes. And I'm trying to wonder here if even the house show runs he had, I don't know what, how many runs he had that weren't prior to WrestleMania four, either in tag team matches with, you know, DB Aussie and Virgil versus, you know, Hogan and Bam Bam or something like that. He really didn't have much of a house show run. And aside from squash matches, the first match that I recall that was competitive that he wrestled on television was WrestleMania four. I can't think of anything that was competitive before that. Aside from the tag team matches, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, DiBiase really didn't do much, and in, in terms of being featured until the, as far as I know, the Saturday night's main, uh, not Saturday night's main event, the Friday Friday night main event, where you know Andre won the belt and gave it to DiBiase, and the next day I'm at the Boston Garden seeing DiBiase with the WWF Championship and Andre the Giant against Hulk Hogan and Bam Bam Bigelow. Right, and I think that worked out well. If they just brought D.B. Aussie in as a cocky heel with maybe a week or week or two build up, it would it would have worked obviously, but it would not have worked to that extent. The fact they ran those vignettes for months before D.B. Aussie stepped into the ring is it, probably the right call in that regard. But yeah, I can't put him any higher than seven. And, and theoretically speaking, D.B. Aussie had he came in and worked would have probably been top four for me, but I, I, I got to, you know, dock points for the fact that the entire second half of 87, he didn't really work. Well, you know what? He didn't work in the ring, but I mean, the vignettes were, I mean, just superstar material. That was, you know, a lot of us didn't like the direction that the WWF took uh, once they started expanding in 1984. But of all the the crazy stuff that they started to do, I mean, I thought the Million Dollar Man stuff was some of the best. I mean, those skits were phenomenal. Well, it was certainly at that time the longest build-up for a character. Now, I know they had Outback Jack vignettes for months, and they, they really dropped the ball on him. But when you when you look at it, they really didn't hype a character coming in as much as they did to DiBiase because there were so many guys coming in that they were just coming in in waves on television. So you, by the time a guy you know w- would have had his three months of vignettes, he might have been gone already. So they had they had to tell D.B. Aussie, you know, he was going to be, be at the top of the ladder. He's getting the ball in order to make sure that, you know, he's not going to get cold feet and go back to Crockett or go somewhere else. Because we were still in that age in 87 where no one was really locked into long-term contracts. You could just pretty much walk out and leave once you're burned out, which a lot of guys did in that era, or they were fired for that matter. And so you really had to be kind of choosy with who you were going to, you know, put the the time and more importantly, put the money in to being a, a, a top heel or a top character who's going to get months upon months of vignettes and, and promo time. And D.B. Aussie was a guy that I'm guessing that Pat Patterson and Vince bet on. <laughs> Actually, 
by 1987, everyone, the WWF, WCW, and Bill Watts had contracts, but they hadn't had them for long. I think they Watts started them in 86, like middle of 86. Crockett started them, I want to say, beginning of 86. McMahon started them like right around the beginning of 84. He started imposing upon the freedoms of his uh, uh, his independent contractors. Ha <laughs> ha. I have a honk. I have an Outback Jack story. About mm, 20 years ago, I get uh, an email from a friend of mine who says, Hey, I work with Outback Jack. He works with me now. Would you, you know, and I'm like, Oh, I'll, I'll send you a tape. You can give it to him for a present. And the guy, I, the guy gets the tape and he emails me. He's like, This guy's full of it. He's not Outback Jack. This is a totally different guy. <laughs> what a world we live in. Oh, oh man. Did, did we get your number seven? Yeah, it was Ted DiBiase. Okay, so my number seven was the Honky Tonk Man. And I want to tell everyone in advance, my number four through seven could be in any order. And I'll probably look at this tomorrow and, and like say, oh, I should have had this guy at number six and this guy at number seven. Honky Tonk Man... I mean, like him or not, he got that gimmick over. He had the big win against Jake Roberts at WrestleMania, which shocked me and everyone who was watching it with me. And then he wins the Intercontinental Championship. Once again, another shock. And he had a big main event runs at major arenas like Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum, etc. against Randy Savage. And it wasn't a favorite of mine, but I've got to I've got to tip my hat to the success of the character. Honky Tonk Man would have been in my top fifteen for sure. The only reason I didn't consider him beyond that is I feel that he was a pro- strictly a product of the WWF machine. It was his success, meaning could a guy like Greg Valentine have come up with Jimmy Hart, beaten Ricky Steamboat, played the chicken shit heel character, and gotten 80% the heat that Honky Tonk Man did. Could Ron Bass have done that, or Danny Davis, or Butch Reed? I, I think the answer is yes. Honky, you know, and Jimmy Hart's a big catalyst in that as well. Don't get me wrong. I think it's Jimmy Hart and the WWF. I mean, not to disparage Honky Tonk Man. Like I said, he made my top 15, but the reason why you didn't crack my top ten is for that reason alone. I feel like the WWF machine could have gotten behind a, a host of people and, and gotten maybe not the same level of heat that the Honky Tonk Man got, but you know, strong heat nonetheless, especially when the fact you, you factor in the biggest money he made was the feud with Randy Savage with, you know, Elizabeth being a factor in that as well. I think, you know, you put Ron Bass in there and, you know, do something with the whip with Randy, you know, tie Randy Savage up or, you know, choke him with the whip or whatever it is, the spurs, you're going to get that level of heat as well. So that that's why I didn't have Honky included. I mean, I didn't like it either. I thought it was, it was just multiple steps beyond anything the WWF had done before by giving this guy called the Honky Tonk Man. He doesn't have a name, just that, and giving him the huge push. Don't get me wrong, I hated it. Um, but I mean, I just, I agree with you. It's part of the WWF machine, but 
ultimately it was extremely successful. You know, for a laugh, let me tell you someone who I considered for the top 10, and then I just kind of snapped out of it. As I was putting this together a few days ago, I'm like, you know what? Sherry Martell deserves a little bit of consideration. And I was like this for like an hour. And I was like, you know, oh, yeah, she, I mean, look where the women's division was before they brought her in. And she really elevated it. And I was like, elevated it to what? What are you talking about? She wasn't, they didn't even defend the championship at, at WrestleMania 4. And her character as, you know, Randy Savage's valet, Ted DiBiase's valet, and Shawn Michaels' valet were way more valuable than her as a wrestler. So that's just me exposing myself and just having crazy thoughts sometimes. Yeah, Sherry never uh, entered my uh, options there. But I, but I was, to that point, though, when you were doing the top 10 tag teams, you could make a reasonable case for the Jumping Bomb Angels in that regard. Actually, you're right. They came in in 87 and they were, I mean, they were like nothing we had ever seen before. Uh, so, yeah, good point. But, I mean, the, the whole thing was I gave no disrespect to Sherry. I mean, they, you know, she can only do what they let her do. But, I mean, it's a kind of a crazy thought that was in my head for about an hour. I, I'm the host of the show. I should keep track of this stuff. Thomas, what number are we on? I had Honky Tonk at seven. I had DiBiase at six. Have we done your, your six, seven, eight, nine, ten? We've done. I'm, I'm on number six right now, and my number six was Kurt Henning. Uh, Kurt, he was in the AWA, so it almost kind of breaks my rule about the minor leagues, but he did have a great match on uh, New Year's Day of Nick Bockwinkel. Well, it was taped earlier, but I, I'll count it towards 87 and 87. He won the AWA world title, really hit his stride as a worker, in 80, 86, back half into 87 is when he really hit his stride into being a premier worker. He's the top guy for a company. You can't fault him that he was pushed in seemingly a year and a half long feud with Greg Gagne. But I, I think the work, work right there and with the PWI aspect of him being a, a world champion, because it's considered a world championship, the AWA in 1987, you, you got to include him somewhere on the list, I think, John. I had Kurt Henning at number 14. Uh, he was someone that I gave strong consideration to for the top 10, but ultimately I just had guys that were better. And it was more, Thomas, your rule about, look, would, for example, which push would you rather have? Uh, my number 13, Harley Race going around the horn uh, against Hulk Hogan twice in major cities, or would you rather be Kurt Henning as AWA champion? But I'll say this about Kurt Henning's 1987. On New Year's Eve 1986, I thought of Kurt Henning as – I just didn't see him as a top guy. In 87 – he presented himself as a top guy. He graduated into there. And by the end of 1987, I was like, okay, this guy is going to have a big future if he wants it with either the WWF or the NWA. And by spring 1988, he had arrived. Yeah, I think. And a part of that is there was rumblings going from early 87 that Kurt Henning was leaving. And, if you believe the rumors, the only reason that Kurt got the AWA World Championship was he was promised it by Vern in order to stick with the AWA. 
which leads me to think you had to think at some point in time Bachwinkle was going to leave and retire. So if Kurt just, you know, is the happy, happy worker in the AWA, does Greg get the AWA World Championship then whenever Nick decides it's time to go? Or Larry Zabisco, for that matter. Does he get an earlier run with that? Who, who gets the run if Kurt either just, A, he just leaves, or B, he says nothing about wanting to leave? I can see that, and here's what here's what I heard back uh, back in '87. Okay, Vern promised Kurt Henning, uh, who grew up on AWA wrestling. His dad wrestled there. He watched it on TV growing up, etc. He, he said to himself, "Okay, I'm still in my 20s. I can live this childhood dream of being the AWA champion, even if it's not what it once was." And, you know, just leave for the WWF or wherever after I've had my fun. And, you know, Vern promised him the title. And what they were going to do, he was going to win it at Super Clash 2 on Feb- uh, on May 2nd, 1987. And then they kind of broke the news to him that, hey, we're going to have a controversial finish. And the belt's going to be held up, and we're going to have a best of seven series. Uh, you and Nick Bockwinkle, we're, we're basically going to do what Magnum TA and Nikita Koloff did the summer before. And Kurt was like, "That is not our deal. If you try to do that to me, I'm just leaving for the highest bidder." And they said, "Okay, Kurt, just win the title." Interesting, because they still had the screwy finish though when Kurt won. You almost have to though, and, and plus. You're, you're effectively turning Kurt Henning heel. Like, he was kind of a tweener before that, and when he accepted that kind of help for, from Larry Zbysko, okay, now he's a bad guy. I always found it hilarious that in that match that Larry Zbysko came out in a full tuxedo. <laughs> I'm just remembering that whole scenario with Larry Zbysko in that tuxedo and and Rod Trongard with his wig falling off and and Zbysko explaining, oh no, fans were throwing money into the ring. You got any change on your rod? And Trongard didn't know what to say. Larry Larry Zbysko's late '80s AWA interviews and and uh, promo time. Yeah, that, I'll, I'll say it now. It's still a guilty pleasure for me. Same here. He was funny. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm the happiest man in the world. I'm like the man who found out that his ex-wife and her new husband got into a car accident and died. Like, you didn't get that stuff anywhere else. You know, it, it makes me kind of wonder how the AWA, because I, I, I can't imagine ESPN was giving them a ton of money to stay solvent. Um, how it was they, like five grand a week. Them. Exactly. I mean, I don't even know how you, they, they kept the, uh, the heat and the water on in the, in the studios at that point in time. But, I mean, at, at some point in time, after Lawler won the belt, it really became the Larry Zabisco show. Yeah, it, it really did. And, you know, I give Zabisco credit. You know, everyone says, oh, yeah, Larry Zabisco, he's famous for his stalling. And, yeah, he did it, but it got heat. And he was the best option the AWA had at some at one point. And really, it, it hurt the AWA when Larry Zabisco left at the end of 1987. And the, the thing about it is, I've always wondered, would the AWA have been in any better shape if they had had Larry Zabisco beat Rick Martel for the AWA title back in 85, 85, 86. Uh, looking at it, knowing what we know now, definitely not. But 
as you know, I bought both. I, I, I mean, the WWF had Hulk Hogan, the NWA had Ric Flair, the AWA had Rick Martel, who I bought as a world champion, just not at the level of Flair and Hogan, but Stan Hansen and, and, and Terry Gordy for that matter. I bought them at the, at the same level as the two other guys. And there's someone listening right now who's saying, you know, Oh yeah, you thought, you thought he was Hulk Hogan's level. Like, just as a wrestling fan, I did think that. So, you know, once again, knowing what we know now that Vern Gagne would say, oh, yeah, Stan, you can't take the AWA title to Japan like I promised. I want you to drop the title tonight to Nick Bockwinkle. And Stan did what he did. You know, we know that now. But but you're right. Had we known that Stan Hansen was going to w- walk out, yeah, give it to Larry Zabisco. Yeah, Larry Zabisco, to me, is one of these guys from the 80s who – I think now is so underrated. He, may, he might be one of those underrated guys of the 1980s, if you ask me, based on the fact of, of the pure, you know, vitriol he gets from the internet. Like he's, he's, he's hated. Yeah. People forget that, you know, he still had that thing of, you know, I'm the man who retired Bruno San Martino. I mean, people remembered that feud into the eighties, into the late eighties. Well, yeah, in the late 80s, he transitioned from that to I retired Bruno and I retired Bockwinkle when he got to the late 80s and he came back to the AWA. That's right. He took credit for taking that one. John, your number six. My number six is Ted DiBiase. And we, we talked about him a little bit. So number five, who do you got? My number five is really, in this year, a one-trick pony – uh, and that's Jerry Lawler. Jerry Lawler, uh, in, for my money, was a part of the, the feud, you know, the feud of the year with, between Tommy Rich and Austin Idol. I don't think there was a feud that came. Cl- I know they had Hogan and Andre. I know you had the Horsemen versus Dusty Nikita and the Road Warriors. You had a few other secondary feuds in both companies. But to me, no feud touches Lawler versus Idol. If you're listening, do yourself a favor after this show. Go on YouTube. And watch the Lawler Idol hair versus hair match. And then watch the aftermath. I cannot remember a match after this that had the near riot aspect of it. Now, there were some cards that had riots based on the fact of you know, people no showing or screwy finishes or whatever. But just based on the, the booking and the, good, and the smart booking, a, a near riot erupted at the Mid South Coliseum. And, and Jerry Lawler played it to a hilt. How many times have we seen a hair versus hair match, you know, ran and the heel loses it, it, or the, or the guy who's balding loses or something else happens. This was a total curveball, and it was ran. It, it was ran brilliantly. And Lawler's Lawler can make the top 10 in my eyes in any year from 1977 until 1990, you know, in his sleep, he can make the top 10. Putting him in the top five is basically a reward for this phenomenal feud, John. I can see that. I had Jerry Lawler at number 11, and there was really not much of a difference. I I could have had him as high as number nine. Dusty Rhodes, Ron Garvin, and Jerry Lawler were my last, you know, two of my my last 11 or my 9, 10, and 11, and it could have gone in any order. I agree with everything you say, and think about this. You had that near riot at the Mid-South Coliseum 
three over three years after Vince McMahon had cartoonized wrestling. And I think after that, it just makes a big difference. Everyone knows what the deal is. Well, guess what? They made you forget what the deal was. They made you hate Austin Idol, Tommy Rich, and Paulie Dangerously that much. And I do recommend you go on YouTube and see it because these guys are running for their lives. And, and once again, it's not 1973 anymore. This was 1987 when, you know, you've seen some silly stuff on wrestling. But the reason I didn't have Lawler hire is because before that feud started and after that feud ended, I mean, Memphis was just so painfully minor league. Uh, nothing was working. You had Jerry Lawler against guys like Brickhouse Brown and Manny Fernandez and Hector Guerrero. It was, it was so, you know, it, it, I'm not saying it was never entertaining, but it, it really came across as, as third rate compared not just to the WWF, but to Crockett. So that's the only reason why I didn't have Jerry Lawler any higher. And really, aside from the match he had in 87 against Austin Idol, I mean, what matches did he have that, like, really were memorable? You know, I mean, he was feuding with Ron Bass, for God's sake. Not Ron Bass, Don Bass. The, the tag team after the hair versus hair match where he joined back up with Bill Dundee is a – I think a good companion piece of this tag to that to that feud as well. So I, I would probably throw that tag team with Lawler Dundee versus Rich and Idol. Yeah, I can definitely say that. I mean, we talked about it last week, how we had that great chemistry between Lawler and Dundee when they had that blood feud just a year later, earlier, and they had been back and forth as, as enemies and friends, and they would continue to do so. So, I mean, I don't, Lawler, Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time. Jerry Lawler might be my number two. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything bad about Jerry. Uh, I had Randy Savage as my number five. I have a feeling I have I have kind of a controversial pick coming up. Savage obviously, you know, had the hot feud with Ricky Steamboat coming into the year, had a ma- match of the year candidate at at worst uh, with Steamboat at WrestleMania, uh, had the big feud with Honky Tonk Man, uh, had the big turn. I mean, when they when I first heard he was going to be turned, I was like, you know, look out. This guy's going to be a strong number two. So number five, you know, top five in, in, a, in a year, that's definitely a compliment. Uh, I'll get to my Randy Savage uh, talk here momentarily. Um but my number four is Barry Windham, as we as I mentioned already. John, who was your number four? My number four, and once again, Savage, DiBiase, Honky Tonk Man, and Lex Luger could be put in any order. Uh, Lex came in, got the huge push as one of the four horsemen, won the United States title as part of that huge push. Uh, when it was the number two championship on in WCW or in JCP, uh, was learning how to work, was learning how to talk. You see him getting better as the year moved on. But probably for me, what separated him from that pack of Savage DiBiase and Honky Tonk Man was the end of 1987 when they when they turned him 
and they made it apparent that hey, this guy is going to be our Hulk Hogan. I mean, if you're if you were even if you didn't get the Observer newsletter or whatever newsletter at, in 1987, if you're watching the TV and you're seeing that this guy, you know, he and the Horsemen have turned on each other, they're now enemies. You're like, whoa, this guy is going to be a huge superstar. For various reasons, he never quite got there. It was, you know, circumstances beyond his control. But that's why I have Lex Luger at number four. Where'd you have Lex Luger, uh, Thomas? Lex was my 10B. Okay. The fact that I couldn't decide on whether to put him in the top 10 or not. And the reason why I didn't put Lex in the top 10 was I felt the first half of 87, he was just really, he was nothing more than Ric Flair's muscle. Now, he had the U.S. title from Nikita Koloff. But he was, at that time, he took over for Ole Anderson and the Four Horsemen. So there was then the kind of thought, okay, will this Fourth Horseman be a revolving door sort of thing? In six months, will Lex be gone? Well, he was. But will there be something that comes after him sort of thing? Granted, you're totally right. The last three, the last 90 days of 87, they, they really propelled him into stardom. But I just could, I couldn't justify it with the first half of 87 being kind of just the background character for Ric Flair's promos to put him as high as you did. I, I can see that. Yeah, you know, one thing I, I I have people and please, I'm not bashing Ole Anderson. I'm not. It's just not the Dusty and Ole Bash show. But people say, oh, my favorite version of the Horseman is the one with Ole. Could you put the United States Championship on Ole and give him the the, the push that they got Luger? He in my Luger was clearly an upgrade in my opinion. I've always said that the Horseman with Luger was, in my eyes, the best version. Now, Rick will always say that it's the version with him, Arn Tully, and Barry Windham, but that's just Ric Flair being spiteful. Let's be completely honest here. That version almost seemed patchworked together, and at that point in time, Barry's the third guy in a year to hold that fourth spot. At some point in time, you can't keep replacing the drummer of the Beatles and expect to have the same you know, popularity. I, again, I say Lex is probably, you know, Barry's a better worker than Lex, obviously, but I felt the horsemen were at their apex when they had Lex Luger there. And, I, and I've always said that. I mean, Lex, Barry was a better wrestler, and when he came into the four horsemen, he showed another aspect of why Barry Windham was so great. But as far as star power went, I mean, you know, they chucked out Ole Anderson and they got this guy who came across as, you know, the number one pick in the NBA or NFL draft. It's like, all right, this top team just added uh, a top star to it. And, you know, that's how it came across to me. So the Luger version might be my favorite as well. Yeah, I think it's to me, it's pretty cut and dry, but uh, it is what it is. My number three is Hulk Hogan. Oh, wow. I have Hulk Hogan at number one. To me, Hulk Hogan was, 1987 was the top of the roller coaster for Hulk Hogan. I think after 87, he started going downhill, not in terms of work rate, but in terms of just, just his popularity in terms of his character push, everything else. Like, you, they, they started transitioning away from Hogan, you know, all Hogan all the time at the end of 87. I mean, this is when he was having his, you know, monster of the month where he would wrestle 
whether it was the Andre program, the one man gang, whether it was Kamala, he started getting away from wrestling the actual, you know, normal average size workers. Now, granted, he wrestled Stud and Bundy at times as well, too. But it seemed they really pushed, you know, him wrestling that monster when they transitioned after Andre. But the problem with that is when you say for three months on television, Andre is the is the 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 final boss, so to speak, in terms of wrestling a giant. What what do you think's gonna happen when he wrestles the one man gang? That's gonna be the guy that wins the world title? Of course not. So to me, after WrestleMania three it just seemed like Hulk Hogan was quite stagnant in terms of his character, in terms of how they ran him. Obviously, in terms of work rate, that's kind of why I pushed him down from being you know, one or two into three. But he was the biggest star in the world. That's why he's right there where he is, you know, even though his character kind of, you know, was a little drab, even though his work rate was, by this point in time, totally off kilter. So, again, I, I know it's unpopular, but that's why Hulk Hogan's my number three. I mean, it makes sense. Um, we'll talk about Hogan a little bit more. I mean, I had him number one for, for basically one reason, WrestleMania three. And you're right. That was the top of the roller coaster. I mean, I remember, you know, getting the, getting the observer after WrestleMania and it says that it grossed $17 million. That was an unthinkable number. In 1987, you know, we've we've already talked about it on previous shows, but you know, you're right. Where do you go after Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant? I mean, everything is a disappointment after that. Here's a guy I want to talk about. My, my number sixteen, the One Man Gang. Again, he he was someone who I gave consideration to because he was the UWF champion, and then he came to the WWF and. I never really understood, like, I wouldn't put Hulk Hogan versus One Man Gang as the main event of WrestleMania 4, but I I have always been surprised that One Man Gang didn't get a bigger push, a bigger program against Hulk Hogan, because to me, he was the ultimate WWF heel. He was a huge guy. No, he wasn't muscular, but he was a huge guy with a crazy haircut and tattoos on the side of his head. I mean, I, I never got why the WWF didn't do more with him. The problem with the one-man gang was they'd never really allowed that character time to develop he immediately, almost immediately had a program with Hulk Hogan. And where normally in a, in a territory, if you're the heel, you know, challenger for the championship, once you wrestle the champion, it's a, it's a slow slog back down the hill or a quick slog depending upon when it's all going down. But to have that title shot very, very early in your run in the WWF, like what else do you do? Because at that point in time, there's no character development to have a guy climb back, you know, have to be a, an also ran, lose cleanly in the middle of the ring, and then climb back up the cart. No, once you once you get pinned and have your run around the horn, you're pretty much working your way back down the middle and working your way out the territory. So I think that's the biggest problem the one-man gang was. They put him up at the top of the card way too soon. Yeah, I mean, I want to say August, or I think it was September 1987, they gave him a match against Hulk Hogan, at the Houston Summit, it's like this is where he was wrestling as world champion less than a year 
ago, and now he's just got this throwaway match against Hogan, you know, again, in the, the, the city that he was, you know, pushed as world's heavyweight champion under Watts. It made no sense. Like I said, I mean, I had him at 16. Uh, I, I thought there was so much more potential there. Let me, let me just talk about WrestleMania 3 really fast. Not to dismiss, even though Hogan's my three, I had Andre the Giant in my top 15, and he wrestled two matches the entire year, and he's there based on WrestleMania 3 alone. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing WrestleMania 3 whatsoever. Thomas, I had Andre the Giant as number three based on two matches. And I know some people are like, oh, that makes no sense. But, hey, I I had Hogan number one and Andre at number three. And it's obvious who I have at number two now because WrestleMania three just changed the industry so much. And Hogan was by far the biggest star wrestling had ever seen, in part because of the uh, enormous impact of that match. And I, I know on some level it doesn't make sense, but I mean, Andre versus Hogan was a match that transcended pro wrestling. I mean, it, it sold out the Pontiac Silverdome. It made $17 million. Well, not just on pay per view, but not only was the pay per view a success. The pay-per-view showed the pay-per-view industry that wrestling could be a viable success on that venue because the the other two pay-per-views before that uh, were not successful. The WrestleMania two was not hugely successful, nor was the uh, the wrestling the wrestling classic was a bomb. Well, let, let me ask you a question in terms of WrestleMania three, and I'm, I'm not saying that it would have been you know a flop. But if they ran WrestleMania 2 on a Sunday, like they did WrestleMania 3, or, or vice versa, ran WrestleMania 3 on a Monday, do you, think, do you think we're talking any differently about this event? We most certainly would be, because a lot of people traveled to the Silverdome uh, on the weekend. A lot of people you know, would not be able to get together on a Monday night. So, yeah, I think they, they absolutely picked the right day and time, Sunday, middle of the day. And again, you know, pay-per-view was still in its infancy. They were still trying to figure it out. Um but I really think if it had not been for WrestleMania three and its enormous success, we may not have seen the Survivor Series ever, and pro wrestling would not have been a, the staple on pay per view that it eventually became. So I'm going with Hogan one and Andre three based on the the seismic impact of that one match. Well, let me going back to that. If WrestleMania three, let's say it's a flop. How long does Crockett then stay open? Because then he's not putting his eggs in the Starcade 87 basket because the pay-per-view genre isn't there yet, which means Survivor Series can't undercut it. Thomas, it would have made all of the difference in the world. I, I will go to my grave saying that WrestleMania three, and again, this is you know why I have these guys so high up there, completely changed the industry. Bill Watts supposedly took one look at this and said, I'm out of here. I am folding my promotion. And Vince was able to parlay the success of WrestleMania three to specifically keep Starcade eighty seven off of pay per view and Crockett, you know, I'm sure Jim Crockett looked at 
WrestleMania said, wow, 17 million. I won't make that. But if I make half that, I'm doing great. Well, you ain't getting none of it because, you know, you're basically done. Right. And that's what I, and I wonder if WrestleMania being a flop, does he, does he, you know, does he buy out Watts? Does he go on pay-per-view? Does he you know, recklessly spend all this money is what I'm getting at. And does it, I don't know if it hastens the war in terms of this Ted Turner, you know, not buy him out, seeing, seeing as how pay-per-views is. There's a million different what-ifs if WrestleMania three flounders in any capacity. Does Watt stick around? Does Crockett stick around? Does Turner buy in once Crockett goes bankrupt? Because that eventually will happen, but a matter of, you know, how far down the road it goes. But we could talk about that all day. I oh, think totally. you and I, John, have the same number two. And uh, by process of elimination, unless you have like Kevin Von Eric or something like that, and he's <laughs> totally here. But my number two is Ric Flair. Ric Flair in normal years would be my number one, but I think really he had a very floundering second half of 1987. And again, when I say floundering, it's back to the Hogan thing. It's not really on the talent, but it's the way the talent was booked. And Ric Flair was booked very poorly. In the second half of 87, first half, he made money, you know, with, with a program of Jimmy Garvin, for Christ's sake. The Barry Windham stuff was great. The War Game stuff was unprecedented during the Great American Bash. I'd like to see if the Great American – did War Games make more money than the country music acts in 86? I would say definitely yes, especially, I mean, they, they, I believe they sold out the Omni for the first war games and they drew uh, 20,000 in Miami for the second one. Again, if, if, uh, if I'm correct. Yeah. So I think the first half of 87 was phenomenal for Ric Flair, but the second half, again, it was a second half. The second half of 87 in and of itself was just really stagnant in the world of wrestling is what I'm kind of developing the pattern in my, in my head here. As I, as I talk it out, but Ric Flair's my number two. Again, this is a guy from 1977 till about 1995 could close his eyes and be in the top five. So number two isn't a knock on him whatsoever. No. But I, I, I think this year, and maybe there's a few years otherwise where he wouldn't be number one, but 87, I couldn't put him at one, but he is my number two. Okay, well, Hulk Hogan's my number one, again, largely based on WrestleMania. You're right. That was the peak of the wrestling industry, and I remember reading in the Observer that, well, we're going to see all kinds of indies open up because of WrestleMania three, and that happened. Who was your number one, Thomas? My number one was Randy Savage, actually, and the reason why is I can't, I can't think of a wrestler who had a better year in terms of January to December. He had the run with in Steamboat the early part of the year, and that really, in and of itself, the popularity from the fans from his great in-ring work, which you have to count on this as well, you know, turned him babyface. Having Elizabeth helped him out. The feud with the honky-tonk man. The fact that they had the golden goose in Hulk Hogan, and this was the guy. This was the guy they felt would be able to take the baton from Hulk Hogan through 1988 and be the world champion and keep things running. He might have been... One of the best, maybe one of the, again, the top three workers in the world at this time, in America at least, between Wyndham and Flair as well. The great programs. He helped the honky-tonk man make money and sell out arenas as a B-show. This isn't Savage Honky-Tonk Man as the second bill with Hogan Andre or Hogan DiBiase. They were selling out arenas. 
Randy Savage and Wayne Ferris. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so let's just think about it. The WrestleMania match with Ricky Steamboat is it the greatest match of all time? No, it's not. It's been it's been it's been touted so much now that it's overrated in my book to that to that degree. Is it a great match? Yes. Is it the greatest match WWF programming showed on pay-per-view television for years after the fact? Yes, it was. But after all of that's done, this was the year that Randy Savage became a worldwide star. Was he a great worker for the, the, the decade previous? Of course he was. But this is where the wrestling community at, in, in, at large was able to identify him as one of the best stars in the world. And that's why Randy Savage is my number one. Well, I, I like this because, you know, again, we're, we're this is not, I, I never want Stick to Wrestling to be an echo chamber where everyone says the same thing. I mean, I'm glad that our top tens were actually more diverse than I thought they were going to be, but that's that's a good thing. Most certainly is. I'm glad of that. And I mean, there were so many guys that like, I kind of, you know, waffled in my head about, I mean, like, I even considered, you know, I considered Honky Tonk Man, I considered Andre, we talked about, um, Couple other guys I had on that list: Ricky Steamboat, Terry Taylor, Austin Idol, Nikita Koloff, Ronnie Garvin, as we mentioned, and then two guys we hadn't mentioned. They were at the bottom of my list: were uh, Mike Rotunda and Jake the Snake Roberts. They didn't have serious consideration, but when I started the list, like, okay, this is where I'm going to pare it down from. You know, this list of ten. So yeah, Rotunda and Jake were at the very bottom of the list, and I think had some circumstances gone their way in terms of booking, in terms of injuries. They could have been in the top ten in a, in a perfect world, so I, I you know, I fell to make mention of those two. All right, I I think I mentioned all of my honorable mentions, people that I've considered for the top. Uh, 10, except for Nikita Koloff, who I had at number 12. You know, he was still going around the horn against uh, Flair early in the year, and he got the TV title, which is an enviable spot, even though Nikita couldn't do anything. And then I, I also gave consideration to Roddy Piper, who wound up as my number 17. He only wrestled uh, for the first three years, three months of the year, but they were three big months. I mean, he was main eventing with guys like Hulk Hogan uh, in the big arenas. And then he had the big hair match against Adrian Adonis. So again, didn't make the top 10, but I at least thought about it before. Now I knew this is normally the time of the show where I thank Thomas and I thank everyone for listening, but you're going to get some extra innings out of us today, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and I want to warn you, well, if, if you're not into college football, because that's what we're going to talk about, I thank you for listening. No need to listen anymore. But Thomas, college football is right around the corner. It starts the day after this episode airs and we're going to talk a little bit about it thomas who do you think with the top 25 has come out who do you think are the overrated teams uh overrated teams i, I think right now when you when you look at terms of overrated it, it's got to serve notre dame this year and the reason why is i and the reason why i say that is they're going to walk into a buzzsaw week one at the horseshoe the line is right now at about uh, 14, 14 and a half right now. So I don't know how anybody can come in thinking that Notre Dame's going to walk in and be competitive with a team that's in all likelihood going to be playing in the college football playoff. 
and I look at it now, and Ohio State is a 16-point favorite against the oh. number five team in the country. Oh, man. that You know what? Paul Feinbaum went off on Notre Dame being in the top 10 for that exact reason. And, and my take on it was that, look, you've got Bama, Georgia, Ohio State, and then you've got to have seven other teams in the top 10. And a lot of teams are, are just going to go into Columbus and be big time underdogs against Ohio State. I mean, that's just the way it is. Ohio State, like you said, is a buzzsaw. Well, let me ask you a question. When you do a preseason poll, okay, mm-hmm. when you do a preseason poll, you have no idea of how the games are going to shake out. Should your preseason poll be the best teams right now, or who do you think the best teams will be come January? Because there's really no parameter there. Because if no. you're basing it on the latter, there is no way Notre Dame will be in the top five come December. Uh, the only way would be is if, well, let's say they lose to Ohio State, but they keep it reasonable, right? And then they run the table, which is possible. I could see them being 11-1 at at the end of the season. I mean, they've got a tough schedule, but I, I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, we're going to get into predictions in a minute. And this is one of my predictions, but for overrated teams, I mean, I have seen pollers put USC in the top five. And I get it in a way, maybe they will finish in the top five. They got a brand new coach. They, they got, uh, used the transfer portal to get a, a really good quarterback and a really good wide receiver. But they went four and eight last year. I can see acknowledging putting, you know, okay, we'll put them at the bottom of the top 25 because they, they have the new coach, the new quarterback. But you got to show me a little something first. Again, four and eight last year, and people are putting him in the top five. Uh, to me, you know, football, it, it, football and basketball are the ultimate team games. And I really wonder if those players are going to have enough experience together to make it all happen. I'm not saying USC is going to be bad, but I think they're overrated coming in. The thing about it is, though, normally I would agree with you 100%, but who ran Caleb Williams' offense last year when he played? (laughs) Lincoln Riley. Who is the head coach of USC, John? Uh, Right now at $12 million a year for eight years, every penny guaranteed, it's Lincoln Riley. So I think that the the incubation period of run, learning that offense is going to be minimal. So I think they can hit the hit the ground running. USC is currently the favorites to win the Pac-12. That surprises me. Well, it, it's I think they're plus one eighty. Utah's around plus three sixty. What blows my mind is Oregon being in the top eleven. So so you're telling me there are three Pac-12 teams that are amongst the eleven best in the country. Now, if you want to say Utah's a top 10 quality team and so is Oregon, fine. Or USC is and Oregon is fine and Utah isn't. There's not enough seats in the bus for three of those teams to be in the top 11, John. I don't care how you shake it. The three best teams aren't coming from the Pac-12 conference. I, guarantee, I will guarantee it right now on the air that once we get to the college football playoff selection show, that three teams from the Pac-12 will not be in that top 11. You know what? I've never thought of it that way before, but I am in 100% agreement with you. 
Uh, I picked Utah to make the playoff last year, and they they started off 0-2 and went on a 10-game winning streak. And, you know, so obviously I've got to take them for, you know, they have a lot of guys coming back. I've got to take them to win the Pac-12 this year. I like USC to win the Pac-12 for what I said. I think it'll be a it'll be cannibalistic in that league, meaning that I could see the, the Pac-12 champion having three losses overall, especially if it's a team like Oregon that's going to be playing Georgia week one. So, yeah, I, I think it's a very top-heavy conference. I don't think anyone from that top three really – UCLA, could they get to eight or nine wins? Yeah, I think they can. I think they got talent on offense. Chip Kelly better pray they get to eight or nine wins. Yeah, really. I'll, I'll be back next year. But aside from those top four teams, it, it's, a, it's a barren wasteland, I think, in the Pac-12 this year. No, the Pac-12 has a lot of fixing to be done. I mean, Washington is a bit of a rebuild. They shouldn't be as bad as they have been over the past 20 years, quite frankly. And yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, I don't see any other real contenders unless Arizona State pulls a real surprise, which I don't see happening. Yeah, Arizona State, I think Herman Edwards, is. I think this is his last year in uh Arizona State as well because I think the the, the the blooms come off the rose. I I'll give Herm credit. I thought he would burn out in two years and get ran out of town there. This will be year four for him, I believe. So he's doubled my prediction. But I think it's going to end the same way anyway. He's going to be out the door. I mean, when they hired Herm Edwards, I was like, you've got to be kidding. You know, this guy, he's not a college coach and he's been respectable. I will definitely give him that. It has not been the disaster I predicted it would be, especially when Herm Edwards, you know, just as soon as he got the job or a couple of weeks after he got the job, he's like, wow, I can't believe how, how much recruiting I have to do. I'm like, yeah, Herm, it's college football. He had the run that he, Kevin Sumlin had the run in Arizona that I thought Herman would have at Arizona State. Kevin Sumlin at Arizona was was not a good thing, and I quite badly wanted him to be the new Tennessee coach when Lane Kiffin walked out of town. But anyway, another overrated team, in my opinion, and they seem to be overrated constantly. Like every year, Texas is back. Texas is back. Texas is like, you know, I've seen them ranked in like the top 15. They went five and seven last year. I don't see anything, any great improvements on that team. I don't think Steve Sarkeesian is exactly Nick Saban. I mean, I just don't get it. And I think part of it is they got Eli Manning's kid, Arch Manning. And supposedly, well, first of all, he's not even supposed to play. And secondly, I have never seen him play a down of football, but my Twitter says he is extremely overrated. Well, I'll make a prediction here that uh, Arch Manning does not even play a game at Texas. And I'll tell you why. It's Quinn Ewers, the quarterback. Uh, the starting quarterback now for the University of Texas. He was the number one recruit for Ohio State last year. Uh, C.J. Stroud obviously became the best quarterback in the world in college football last year, so he transferred out back to Texas. He's from Texas, I believe. Made a, Got a million-dollar NIL deal from Ohio State, went there, and now he's back in Texas. So with that as well, they are bringing back the best running back probably in college football, Bijan Robinson. So they do have a very powerful offense there in a league which isn't very defensive-minded. Oh, no. So could I, see, oh, no. could I see Texas winning eight or nine games? 
could I see? Well, the good news is about this, John. Texas could win eight or nine games, but we won't get the Texases back. Do you know why? Why is that? They play Alabama week two, and Alabama will throttle them. Yep. <laughs> so the Texas' back stuff will be delayed at least one more year, thank God. But Texas is closer than people think, I'll say. 2023 could be the year for Texas. And I think Quinn Ewers, and I'll get to, you know, I'm jumping ahead of myself. I think he's a fantastic, a fantastic bet at 40 or 50 to 1 to win the Heisman Trophy. And I'll tell you why. Bryce Young is the defending Heisman Trophy winner, correct? Yep. Bryce Young is returning this year to Alabama. Alabama has a, a cavalcade of weapons, correct? They do. But I'll tell you what, Bryce Young ain't winning the Heisman again. And I'll, and I'll tell you why, and I agree with you, because it is so hard to get a writer to vote for you the second time around. Yep. Don't believe me, ask Johnny Manziel or Lamar Jackson, who both had arguably better seasons the following year. Johnny Manziel definitely had a better season throwing the football his second go-around at Texas A&M. Running the ball not so much, but as a quarterback, he improved immensely from his first freshman year at Texas A&M. So for Bryce Young to repeat, he's going to have to go above and beyond what he did last year. And what did he do last year? He threw for 47 touchdowns. How much more improvement can he have from that in a 13-game season? Not a whole hell of a lot. So I think by virtue of that, he's disqualified himself. Not to mention the best defensive player in college football plays for Alabama. So, yeah, Will Anderson probably won't win the Heisman, but he will siphon votes from Bryce Young. This goes back to the odds-on favorite now, C.J. Stroud. But the problem with C.J. Stroud is we keep hearing how he has the best receiving core in football. Yeah, his number one receiver, Donathan Smith and Jingba, I'm, I'm saying that wrong probably, that's going to be a top five pick in the draft. Marvin Harrison Jr. is a first-round receiver in the making. So he's going to get a lot of criticism by saying, oh, yeah, anybody can have it with the weapons that T.J. Stroud has. It's getting to the point to Ohio State last year that receivers that weren't seeing the field were transferring to Alabama. That's how deep that receiving room is, John. So I think the, I think the Heisman Trophy winner is going to be a guy that we're not talking about right now. And I think, in my eyes, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna aim, aim big. And I'm gonna go with Quinn Ewers. Wow, I can okay, and I can see Quinn Ewers. I will tell you why I don't think Bryce Young is going to win the Heisman. The, the, the voters do weird stuff. For example, there were people who left Willie Mays and Tom Seaver off of their Hall of Fame ballots because they didn't want that guy to be the guy who was the first to get 100%. I just have the feeling unless Bryce Young just destroys every record out there, they're just not going to vote for him. They're just not going to give him to him twice. They're going to say, okay, you know, Archie Griffin, the 50th anniversary of his two consecutive Heismans is coming up. And we're just not going to take that distinction away from from Griffin. I mean, they're just not. And think about it this way, too, John. How many games is Bryce Young going to play all four quarters to break any records? Good point. 
unless they're flagrantly chasing the Heisman the way they did with Ron Dane. I don't see Nick Saban doing that because, first of all, too, Saban has to juggle so many blue chip athletes to just keep young. If you just keep young on the field for all 13 games this year, you're going to have two blue chip quarterbacks probably transfer. Yeah, that's actually another good point. I mean, Saban, you know, he's recruited like nothing we've ever seen before. And he tells these guys, hey, you know, I'm not promising you anything. Come in, get in here and compete against the best. And, you know, despite me being a Tennessee fan, I have a ton of respect for for Nick Saban. Do you have a surprise team for, for 2022? Surprise team, yeah. Um, at 25 to 1 to win the Big Ten, it's Michigan State. I think really that Big Ten is going to be a, a division where a team is going to come out of nowhere. I don't think it'll be Penn State. I don't think it'll be Michigan necessarily. Michigan is on the on the periphery, but I really like that Michigan State program this year. I, I think that that they're they they are one of, if not the best coach team in college football right now. They are ranked 15th in the country right now, so it's not a big big surprise here, but. When you look at their schedule, they start out Western Michigan week one, Labor Day weekend, and then they have Akron, Washington, home for Minnesota, at Maryland. They play Ohio State in week six, which should be an undefeated, a a top, probably a top seven matchup. Ohio State will be two still. Michigan State will climb up the poles. And if Michigan State can win that game, they have a game at Michigan uh, in the big house on the 29th of October. They should easily come out of this 11-1, and in my opinion. I mean, they have a final game at Penn State on senior day, but I think Penn State will they'll be you know, three or four losses by then. I don't think that will be a game that Penn State will get up for. So I, th- I will predict that Michigan State comes out of the regular season with one loss. Wow. Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, Michigan State, considering that they play in the Big Ten East, eleven and one with Washington as an out of conference opponent, that would be that would be. I mean, that would make <laughs> to say the least. They gave a crazy contract to Mel Tucker, which I probably would not have done, but he he will absolutely have earned that contract if he goes eleven and one in that division. I, I do, and. One one other uh, team that I think is you know kind of hidden under the radar right now as well too is I look at a team like you know I, I don't want to say under the radar because they're not you know they're not Vanderbilt but teams like Ole Miss teams like Oklahoma State could they catch fire and and sneak into the playoff as the the either the Big Twelve champion or the SEC runner up I mean they theoretically could and it wouldn't surprise me because we all know. And, and the betting public makes it quite clear. You can make a bet right now. You get either Alabama, Georgia, or Ohio State to win the national championship. And you have to bet $340 to win 100 Or summarily, you can get the other 128 teams and win $280 for your $100 bet. That tells you pretty much where all the talent lies in college football. There is obviously going to be a fourth anomaly in there, a team that we're not seeing. Clemson seems to be the chosen team to be the fourth team in the playoff. I don't see with Clemson, especially if DJ Ugalele is playing at quarterback. 
he had the most underwhelming season for a hyped quarterback I can remember probably in decades. And I think now that Dabo's got to have a short leash on him. And if there is quarterback turmoil there, I don't see it happening in Clemson. Oklahoma's in the top 10. I can't see Dylan Gabriel out of Central Florida taking a team to the college football playoff. I simply can't. You go to the Pac-12, you know, USC we mentioned. I think that entire conference is going to be just cannibalized. Ditto the Big 12, Oklahoma State, Baylor, Oklahoma. I think that's a two-loss conference champion coming out of there. The American, I think Cincinnati was the one team that got in there, and they, they lost a 12-round decision, 12 rounds to zero to Alabama. I really find it difficult to believe that they'll put a group of five team back in the playoff under the four-team format. So where do these teams come from? I think it's going to be two Big Ten teams and two teams from the SEC right now. I really do. And is it Georgia and Alabama? I think it's too easy. Is it Ohio State and Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State? I think it's too easy. I think it will be Ohio State, Michigan State, Georgia, and Ole Miss in the playoff. Ole Miss, wow. Now, you know, and it's not unthinkable. I mean, we've seen, you know, one thing I like about talking college football with Thomas, both on the internet and here, is that, you know, Thomas, you really, you are not afraid to make predictions that are off the beaten path. Like, everyone is taking Everyone is taking Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State for the playoff. I, I, I am not. I'm going to make a big prediction, Thomas, that we don't have any major undefeated teams coming in. Everyone's going to lose at least once. And the play, not the playoff week, the conference championship week is going to be wild because everyone needs to win to get in. Tell me, okay, you're, so you're going Bama, Georgia, Michigan State, uh, no, excuse me, Bama, Ole Miss, Ohio State, Michigan State. Okay, Georgia, Ole Miss. I am going with Ohio State, Alabama, Baylor and Utah. I think Georgia is going to lose twice. Like I said, I think everyone's going to lose once. Georgia versus Alabama is going to be a play-in game. And this time, I don't think Kirby Smart outcoaches Nick Saban. Nick Saban's not going to forget about that one. But, I mean, this, this is why the season's so interesting because the, the road to that Final Four is, is always so great. I will say about Georgia, if, if they can get past Oregon, now, now, granted, I say get past, you know, you know, flippantly, they are a 17-and-a-half-point favorite in the Georgia Dome against Oregon. And normally you would think, okay, they're going to come in, run roughshod, win by four touchdowns. Oregon did go to the horseshoe and win handily last year. It's a different team. So if Georgia gets past that game, their hardest assignment is probably at Kentucky. And look out for Kentucky this year, my friend. Because they have they have Auburn at home. They have Florida, Tennessee at home. I don't see a game outside of that game at Kentucky, where if Kentucky is still in the top 20, Georgia should play their first 10 games as a two-touchdown-plus favorite in every single one of them. 
Yeah, you know what? I, I can I can see that. I just feel like, and this is a, a a sense more than anything that you know, college football teams are very. There's a lot of variance week to week, and sometimes you just don't get a team's best game. And I, I see that happening for Bama, Ohio State, and Georgia. They're way ahead of the pack now, but again, there's just a, a lot of variance. Thomas, do you have any offbeat predictions for us for 2022? Uh, for college football, I'll say this. I, I think there's going to be some coaching changes. I, I think we talked about Herm Edwards going to be gone. I think that Neil Brown's gone in West Virginia. I think Scott Frost is going to be gone. And I think Mike Norvell's going to be gone in Florida State. One guy, two guys I think to keep – well, I'll say a couple guys actually – I think Warren Ruggiero, the Wake Forest offensive coordinator, is going to get a Power 5 job. I hope it's in Morgantown, but I think he'll be a Power 5 guy. Tony Alford, the running back coach at Ohio State's one. And then two other guys I think they're going to go Power 5 is Jeff Trailer, the uh, head coach at UTSA, and uh, Troy Calhoun, the head coach at Air Force. Wow. I think people are looking at a different format here. The the run-and-gun – way of college football everyone's tried it teams that are that don't have the horses to do it i think are going to some teams going to try a different aspect and bring troy calhoun in to head coach their team and it might just be florida state john i you know troy calhoun has been at air force for how long now like 18 years something along those lines yeah but i i think i think he's going to make it i think someone's going to give him an offer one guy that I failed to mention here that I think could be in that regard, too, is Jim Leonard. But I think Jim Leonard, now that Brent Venables is gone, I think Jim Leonard's the hottest name for a coordinator. So I think he can kind of pick his job. He doesn't have to wait for a job to come up. So I think Jim Leonard's going to either get a major, major Power 5 job or he'll be the next head coach at Wisconsin, whichever comes first. I think this year won't be the year for that for Leonard, but it could be. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year at Florida State because Norvell, I mean, clearly he needs more time. He was taking over a disaster after really Taggart left or left. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, th- there's, there's only one problem there. And that is that, you know, Deion Sanders supposedly, uh, through his representation has let Florida State know that, yeah, he'd take the job. And there are a lot of Florida State alum drooling for the idea of Dion taking over. So that presents Mike Norvell with a, a real unique set of problems. Here's my offbeat predictor, one of them. We look at Alabama and how historically dominant they've been under Nick Saban. There is a mirror Alabama or an opposite Alabama. And I predict this team is going to get better this year. Let's go back a little bit. For seven years in a row, Kansas has finished dead last in the Big 12. Not tied or anything like that. Dead last for seven years. For over the past 10 years, they have been 6-83 and in Big 12 play. How is that even possible to lose 83 out of 89 games in your conference? But I think this year they finally take a step forward. They get out of last place. Uh, I think they can finish like four and eight 
which you're going to have parades in Lawrence, Kansas for finishing four and eight and, and may, maybe even five and seven. And I, I think they're a program. They have a lot of experience They're You know, they, uh, Leopold has been the coach there long enough. I think they're going to turn the corner, not, you know, become a power, but they're going to get out of the gutter. Well, Kansas will get past Tennessee Tech, I think, so that's a good one. But then they go back-to-back at West Virginia at Houston. I can't see them getting past West Virginia and Morgantown because I don't think the wheels will fall off there yet. Houston, I think, should throttle them. Houston could be a – you know, if if this were a a 12-team playoff like they were expanding and a group of five team were to get in, Houston would be a, a popular pick there. But then, then the schedule opens up, the clouds open up, they get Duke, Iowa State, and TCU all at home. And theoretically speaking, they could win all three of those games, John. Yeah. Iowa State has really lost all of their talent. Duke is, is dreadful. And TCU's in the middle of a transition. So right there, that, that, they could finish, let's just say, three and three right there. But then they get the, the wheels fall off at Oklahoma, at Baylor, home for Case, Oklahoma State. At Texas Tech, which could be a win, too. Home for Texas, which Texas won't sleepwalk that game this year. And then the rivalry game at Kansas State. But Chris Kleiman is a phenomenal coach. I can't see him losing that game at home. So, yeah, I'm going to go with you, John. I'm going to say 4-8 to their record this year. And again, baby steps. They are they that program has been on its rear end forever, and I think they're they finally show some life. I'm not picking them to, to win the Big Twelve. Just signs of life, which they have not had since Mark Mangino. You brought up Duke. Another one of my predictions is Duke goes a horrific one in eleven. That is worse than the record indicates. The only reason they're not going 0-12 is because they're playing North Carolina A&T. Embarrassing story when Lane Kiffin left Tennessee. Tennessee had a deal to bring David Cutcliffe in to coach Tennessee, and I was kind of lukewarm to it. I was like, I don't think this is the guy who is going to compete with, at the time, Nick Saban, uh, Urban Meyer, Mark Richt. The guy won ten and four at Duke. He went nine and four at Duke. If he could do that at Duke, he could have done great things at Tennessee. And I'm embarrassed for blowing him off. But he he had a great career at Duke. Yeah, he lost something off his fastball at the end, but that happens to everyone. But yeah, I think Duke is going to be the worst Power Five team out there by a big stretch. So this is where I tell you now, Duke is a seven-point favorite at Temple week one. Are you telling the folks at home to take Temple money line in that game? Sure. <laughs> I think Duke is going to be horrible. I, you know what? I have not looked hard at Temple because Temple traditionally is not a really good team, and they've had a rough couple of years. So it's possible that yeah, maybe North Duke can win versus Temple. But, I, I mean, I think, again, Duke is going to be just a, a horrible program this year, worse than in P5. Thomas, I have two more offbeat predictions. Do you have any more? Uh, not really. I mean, like, sort of, mine, mine sort of play, you know, into the into the hands of all of that going on. But when you, when you look at it, I think it's going to be kind of a paint-by-numbers year in terms of conference champions. I mean, yeah, Oklahoma State isn't the favorite. Michigan State isn't the favorite. But I don't see anybody, you know, going from 3-9 and nine to 10-2 and two this year in, in college football. 
I think teams like Kentucky and Miami, they have presumably first-round quarterbacks, you know, uh, on deck and Will Lewis and um, Tyler Van Dyke. But I don't think they're going to be, you know, top 15 teams come November and December. So I think really, I mean, off beats Ole Miss and Mississippi State in the playoffs, or Ole Miss and uh, Michigan State rather. But other than that, I, I think it's pretty standard fair. I mean, Quinn Ewers winning the highs, and you can't get you know more off the beaten path than that. So no, and I, I you know what, I I can see a path to Quinn Ewers winning the Heisman. My last two is number one. I don't think we're going to see this in November and December, but and I'm going to surprise a lot of people, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. I don't think Urban Meyer's college coaching career is over. I think there's there are he's not going to just take any job. He's not going to Ball State. He's not going to UMass. But if Florida State or a program like that came knocking and you had a, a program desperate enough and they're willing to just say, hey, look, you know, we're taking a no tolerance, uh, a zero tolerance policy towards anything abusive. And if Urban, you know, shows that he's sorry about whatever happened in Jacksonville and, you know, I just would not rule out a program bringing him back in. There are a handful of programs that I could see bringing him in and him wanting to go and them saying, hey, aside from the fiasco with the Jacksonville Jaguars, this guy has won big everywhere he's gone. See, the thing about Urban is, and, and I and I lean towards him being done, only in the regards of, I think he would only go to a blue blood program because a blue blood program is the only one who would reach his asking price. And I don't think they want to be in the Urban Meyer business those programs. So I think just, just by that alone, this might be the end of the line for him. He's one of the guys that I could see Florida State saying, all right, we have been down and out for so long. We'll talk to this guy. I could see Arizona State saying, okay, why have we never broken through and won the Pac-12? We're willing to talk to this guy. There are other programs that, you know, their, their coaching situation is pretty much settled, but let's say if someone were to lure Mark Stoops away from Kentucky, I could see Kentucky rolling out the red carpet for Urban Meyer and, and him at least thinking about it. But yeah, at the end of the day, like I say, it might not happen. He might not be a coach in 2023, but, but I just don't think his, his coaching career is over. I think he's going to be back somewhere. It remains to be seen. It, it certainly wouldn't shock me, but I would, I would venture to say if I had to make a bet one way or the other, I would say that he's not coaching in 2023. No, and, and you might be right. I mean, like I said, there's a handful of programs that would be a fit. Like, you know, in, let's say Harbaugh leaves Michigan. Is Michigan going to talk to Urban Meyer? No, they're not. <laughs> they're they're not, not that kind of program. But there's going to be a program in the, the Big 12 or the SEC just desperate enough to at least be willing to talk to Urban Meyer. My final crazy and very oh, oh, hey, hey john let me let me get back to this for a second. There, there's one school that i could reasonably see urban meyer going to actually are they located in knoxville they are not okay if, if luke fickle takes a big time power five job i could see cincinnati wanting to keep the train rolling and making a run for urban meyer you know what I could totally see Cincinnati trying to make that move 
And you're right. You, <laughs> Cincinnati, as we both know, are in Ohio. And as far as I know, Urban Meyer is still beloved in Ohio. And I, I could see the match. I really could. Especially with Cincy going into the Big 12 here in 2024. They're going to need to have that coach to kind of maintain that success they're going to have from leaving the American. And you would think, like, they, they can't take a step back and hire a guy that's a coordinator at a power five. They can't take a step back and hire a guy who's the, you know, who's the head coach at, you know, Appalachian State right now. They can't, they can't do the, those things and expect to be a 10-win team in perpetuity. They got to take – if Luke Fickle does, in fact, leave, which – at this point in time, I, I, it would probably be short, nothing short of, you know, a, a major top 10 job, you know, being, you know, handed to him. It, yeah. But it, but it could happen. I could see him going somewhere. I could see Luke Fickle getting $6 million a year to go to Auburn. I could see that being a part, $8 million a year to go to Auburn. And if that happens, what is Cincinnati going to do? They have to keep the train rolling or else they're going to be, you know, running the risk of, you know, being Central Florida and kind of falling back into mediocrity. So I could see them going all in and hiring Urban. And that's really the only position I think that it works out for both sides where it's, it's, it's viable for a big-time program and it's not enough of a step down for Urban and his ego. I, I could definitely see that. Good call on that. And it's funny you mentioned Auburn because my final wacky prediction, and it's very specific, is that in three or four months, Auburn is going to be so happy with their new head coach, Matt Rule. You think they're going to really name Matt Rule that early? It's going to be a Bobby Petrino from the Falcons of Arkansas sort of deal? I think it's going to come later than Bobby Petrino, but I think Matt Rule, uh, it, it's not, I, I don't think Caroline is going to have a big year whatsoever. And I think he's going, going to be on the hottest of hot seats. And I could see Auburn just throwing him a, a what is it, a, a flotational device and saying, hey, would you like to come here? And he'll bolt at the end of November or, or whenever. I mean, for the same reason, Bobby Petrino, hey, it wasn't working out for the Falcons. And when was the next time he was going to get a shot like being able to coach at Arkansas? Matt Rule will probably be looking at it the same way. Hey, I've got an opportunity here and this ship is sinking and I'm taking the job at Auburn. I could certainly see it. I just wonder if uh, it, it would have there have to be a lot of factors in there for him to you know be named the head coach in November. That would mean I would think that Auburn just totally torpedoed the season because if they're eight and four, they're not going to fire Brian Harson before the bowl season. They're not going to fire him in week eleven. Like they have to be you know six and six, five and seven to make that move that early. I think. Now, you see, that's where we disagree. I think Auburn is, is probably going to finish right around seven and five, but they're just, you know, A, they're, they don't think they're a seven and five program. And B, Harson looks like Harson and Auburn feel like the worst fit imaginable right now. And I don't see that turning around. I think they're going to look for an excuse to get rid of him. Uh, they're going to just buy him out, and they're going to go after Matt Rule. That that is my big, crazy, very specific prediction for 2022. I mean, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility. I'll say that much. I I would see. I'll put it. I see that happening before Urban coaching in 2023. 
<laughs> All right. Hey, and then once again, this is why I like talking college football with you. You don't just go with the, the obvious stuff. And I also, Thomas, like talking wrestling with you. You're one of our best guests. Thank you for coming on Stick to Wrestling again. Always a great pleasure. Thank you, John. All right. Almost two hours of Stick to Wrestling. You give us two hours, perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this opportunity, this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does, and he's just the the greatest guy. He's flexible when it comes to uh, scheduling this show. As As I mentioned, I couldn't ask for a better producer. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network we'll see you next week this concludes our podcast day